This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What is up, Elevate? Welcome back. It's the best night of the week. Also, welcome back me, I guess, because I missed last week. Wow, I miss you guys when I'm not around. But since I saw you last, I had another kid. That was fun. Yeah. This belongs to somebody. Yeah, thanks. His name is Judah Vincent Josiah Farone. Whoo, that's a mouthful. Judah meaning praise, Vincent meaning conqueror, and Josiah meaning that Yahweh heals. I've got to do something with this for now. So that his name means that through praise, Yahweh conquers and he heals. Isn't that powerful? Man, we can preach on his name. Elevate, we are here and we exist for one purpose and one purpose only. Y'all remember what that is? We are here to elevate Jesus! Elevate Jesus! Man, you guys got it. That's it. That is the purpose and the calling of our lives. We are opening a new series tonight. It's called Book of Books. We're actually going to study the Bible itself and how it came into our hands. And it came through the blood of martyrs. And it came through the preservation of God's word over and over and over again. It is a beautiful, beautiful book that we get to hold in the palm of our hand. But before we jump into the history of how it came together, we need to have a grasp on what's in the book. And so tonight we're going to be introducing where it came from, who wrote it, how it's collected, and what the overall story of the Bible is. So that as we're talking about the people that wrote the Bible, the people that preserve the Bible, you'll understand kind of where we're coming from and the direction that we're going. First of all, let's get a big picture view of who the ultimate author of the Bible is, and that is our creator himself. That is the creator of me and you, the creator of human history, the creator of every authority and king that ever lived, the creator of every historian or scientist, the creator of every mathematician, the creator of the laws that govern our universe, wrote this. And he himself, in his writings, compares the Bible to a lot of analogies. And these analogies give weight to how beautiful it is. In Psalm 119, God's word is called the law. It is objective truth. What is truth? Is it subjective for everybody? No, it is objective truth. In Luke 8, it's called a seed that when it's planted in our hearts, it grows. In James chapter 1, it's called a mirror that we look at ourselves and, and we see ourselves in the reflection of Scripture. In Ephesians 5, it's water by which Jesus cleanses the church. In Hebrews 6, it is an anchor for our faith, something that is stable that we can hold on to. In Jeremiah 20 and 23, it is a fire purifying God's people. In Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 6, it is a sword that is cutting into our spirit. 
in equipping us for spiritual battle. In Deuteronomy 8 and Luke 4, it is the bread that God provides to nourish his people. In Psalm 119, it is a lamp to our feet so that we can see. Other analogies in God's word are that it is a hammer which breaks apart. It is milk which nourishes. It is gold of the highest value. It is honey that is sweet. It is rain and it is snow. This is God's word. And as we begin to ask hard questions like, who wrote the Bible? How was it put together? Why these books and not other books that are put into it? How is it preserved over the millennia? And can we trust it? We need to begin with understanding what it is we're talking about. That God's word contains law, but it's not a rule book. It contains history and science, but it's not a history book or a science book. It contains prophecy, but it is not this this crystal ball of the future. It contains wisdom, but it's not a philosophy book. And it contains poetry, but it's not simply art. It exceeds so much all of those things. No, it meets us at our deepest human need. And it meets a need that is greater than just knowing history or science or law or wisdom or any of these things. It's a need that's deeper than just that we need oxygen. No, it's, it's a deeper need than we need water or food or companionship. It's a deeper need than even our needing purpose. No, it speaks and nourishes the deepest need of our humanity. And the greatest human need is that we are made right with omnipotent, sovereign, holy creator God, whose wrath is on us towards eternal hell. That we are made righteous with him. We are under his wrath because of our sin. And if we die because we don't have oxygen, it is hell that we experience. If we die because we don't have food, you see, oxygen and food have nothing compared to eternal wrath of God. But we must be made right with the God who we have rebelled against, who we sin against, who we have offended. And scripture is God's way of speaking to us and laying out his plan of salvation to be made righteous, to be justified, to be made right with God. We are so blind in our sin that we don't even know that we're sinners. And it takes a mirror to show us the filth of our selfishness and our self-worship. The Bible confronts our blindness and it confronts us with truth. The men and women whom God has called to know him, scripture is a Niagara Falls of nourishing, thirst-quenching water. And it refreshes our dry and tired souls. Scripture has two purposes. It is one, to glorify God. That is That is it. That is the highest value that it has, is it glorifies God. As we unpack it, we see how it's beautifully woven together. We're going to see how only God could have put together something like this. It gives glory to God. And secondly, it is for us to know him. He is revealing who he is through Scripture. Go and check out our last series on the podcast, The Attributes of God, Who is Like Our God. It will rock your world as you begin to study the God of Scripture. Because if we know God, if we know the creator of all life, then we have life. We have salvation through the knowledge of who God is. The word of God is 66 books written by 40 plus authors, writing in three plus different languages. 
Most of these authors never even met each other. They're from different countries, composing it in different languages, in different historical settings between 1440 BC and 100 AD, about 1500 years. And despite their different personalities, their different historical settings, the different countries, the different languages, all of them attest to the same God with the same purpose of the same character. And God speaks through each of these authors and gives them distinct puzzle pieces. And although they never met, most of them, when all of these puzzle pieces are collected together, it begins to give us an almost complete picture. A picture that God has revealed himself. And through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this puzzle was begun through traditions and genealogies, and they were begun by Moses. And as these Writings of Moses were passed down through the centuries. Attached to them were more prophecies and more words of God and more stories of how God worked in human history until this beautiful puzzle, this tapestry, which was missing a major piece, was filled in. And it was filled in by Jesus Christ, who is what all of the rest of the puzzle is pointing to. And he fulfills every one of these puzzle pieces that perfectly harmonize into a beautiful picture of who God is. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect reflection of the invisible God. Therefore, God's word is the self-revelation of who he is. And the Bible was written by shepherds, historians, priests, governors, musicians, kings, prophets, a tax collector, a doctor, a tent maker, a missionary, and a few fishermen. And when you zoom out and you see these things collected you have a perfect puzzle with all the pieces filling in, and it's a puzzle of a picture of who God is. This is what you get to hold between your hands. This is the very word of God. Now, as a disclaimer, this series, the book of books, is not meant to argue an atheist into becoming a Christian. That's not what this is for. This is for those of you who are hungry to know more about where the Bible came from and God's amazing providence that brought it together. And you know what? There will be some apologetics, which means some defenses of Scripture that you'll be able to use in those kinds of conversations. But albeit a small step, there is always going to be a step of faith that says, God, I trust you. I trust that you're sovereign, and I trust that you put into my hands exactly what you want. And you know what? The step of faith that it takes to not believe in God is a huge step of faith. The burden of proof lays on the detractor, on the critic, not on those who call God their own. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the messenger of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Therefore, Scripture itself is from the very mouth of God, and it's everything you need in your life. Tonight is about building the foundation for the rest of the series. Next week, we're going to jump into history. We're going to jump into apologetics and a whole bunch of amazing stuff that is just a mountain of information that I've been studying. I think I did the math that for every two minutes that I'm up here, there's an hour of study behind the scenes. Like, I'm like working tirelessly to try to give you something that you can wrap your minds around, but is also comprehensive. We're gonna, so that for tonight, we're going to ask the question, what is the overall story of the Bible? 
What is the timeline in history? How is it organized? And who wrote it? The story of the Bible is probably the most beautiful story that could ever be imagined, especially when you consider that this is the story of how we spend eternity with God in heaven. And it begins with God. God. Self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, sovereign creator God chooses to create. And he creates everything that is in every law of physics. And the pinnacle of his creation He put his thumbprint on to reflect his image, and that was me and you, mankind itself. And that's the the purpose of Genesis 1. It's this beautiful poem which has two purposes. One, to say God is creator, and two, his greatest creation was man. And God gave man a relationship with himself that was pure and holy and unstained, and God walked and talked with man in perfect holiness and love. But, man, in his self-interest and self-worship, elected to rebel and reject his creator, his lover of his soul and very breather of life, rejected him into rebellion. And when you reject the, the God of life, when you reject the creator of Life, you have rejected life itself. And there is nothing else in your rebellion but death. And so mankind, in its rebellion against God, also rejected life itself and is under the curse of death because of our sin. And all of mankind who comes after Adam and Eve, who would be born to them, are born into the same rebellion, into the same filth of wickedness and sin, destined to die, but not just a physical death, an eternal hell death, separated from the presence of God. And in this sin, mankind continues to get worse and worse. And we see the first murder and the second murder until the scripture says that every thought of man's mind was evil. So God searches the earth. Is there yet a faithful man? And God calls Noah's family. And sin had become so vile and corrupt and so everywhere that God hits the reboot on humankind and wipes out all life except for Noah and his family saved by an ark. And you know what happens? That Noah and his family come off his ark and yet although there was a reboot on humanity, the curse of humanity's heart was still not dealt with. And so immediately we see sin again. And it continues to get worse and worse. And then God again calls a family out of humanity, Abraham's family. And he calls them from a foreign land, and he gives Abraham and his family three promises. He promises, one, I'm going to make you such a big family that you're going to become a nation. And two, I'm going to give you your own special land that I'm promising you. And three, it'll be through your family that I'm going to bless all the families of the world. The same blessing that I gave way back at the beginning of time. Remember whenever I told you that humanity fell? God spoke to Adam and Eve, and he prophesied that he would not leave them in their sin, 
but he would actually crush the head of the tempter and redeem his people back. Abraham, your family is it. I'm going to call one of your descendants to redeem my people. Abraham had a son, Isaac, and God spoke to him the same prophecy. And his son, Jacob, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel's family had to run from where they were living because of this famine. And they moved into Egypt, which was a point of salvation because of Joseph. And yet, in Egypt, Pharaoh got scared of this big people that were living there and enslaved them. And for 400 years, the Israelites, Abraham's family, the called ones, are in slavery. Until God calls a man out of the Israelites from the tribe of Levi. Those Israelites, by the way, living under oppression blossomed into becoming two to three million people. And so God's first promise is held true. So God calls Moses and through his incredible works and power brings these two to three million people out of Egypt into the desert. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where God gives them the quote unquote the law to begin to deal with human sin. And the law allows that where man should die because of his sin, the law allows that an animal sacrifice can be made, that this animal, God would, would recognize this animal as a substitute. This animal would die as a substitute for their sin. And so over and over and over again, often they needed to bring sacrifices and kill these bulls or lambs or pigeons, depending on your wealth, to be purified of their sin. It was temporary. It didn't cut it all the way because, again, the human heart, even though we're working at the surface level, that blood is covering sin. It's so temporary. It's still not dealing with human nature that has been fallen since the beginning of time. Moses comes to the point of death, and he passes over responsibility to Joshua, who leads them into the land that God promised to Abraham finally. So promise number two is fulfilled. They step into this land and God tells Joshua, I'm giving you this land, but here's my commission. You are to wipe out all of the inhabitants living here. Every nation, every people, wipe them out. And Joshua does not obey God. He leaves many tribes and many nations alive and they become the falling point and they become the very people that would lead them into idolatry and sin over and over and over again because of Joshua's disobedience. They would become the very people that would oppress them again and again and again. And Joshua, despite his disobedience, tries to hold the covenant. He tries to get the people to commit to it. And at his death, calls them to account and says, will you train your children to know God and to know his covenant? In the very generation after Joshua, they abandon God and they fall into sin. And it begins this terrible cycle. The people of God reject God and they worship idols. So God allows another nation to oppress them. And then under oppression, they cry out to God for help. So God sends a judge. And the judge uh, frees them from this oppression and then turns their hearts back to God as long as that judge is living. But when the judge dies, back into it again. Sin, oppression, salvation. Sin, oppression, salvation. Around and around and around until God sets up a king over his people with the idea that the king's lineage of son of son of son of son would be faithful men. And yet the very first king crumbles to his own sin and disobeys God, Saul. So God dethrones him and sets up David. And David is 
a man after God's own heart. David hungers after God. He serves God with everything that is in him, and he finds favor in God's eyes so that God makes him a promise. David, I commit that there will always be one of your descendants on my throne. And one of those descendants will rule for eternity. It's your lineage, David. It's your family that I'm bringing the redeemer of all humanity through. And David's lineage continues through Solomon, who builds this temple to glorify God. God honors the temple. His very presence manifests on the temple. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, makes this stupid decision. And because of his stupidity and his self-worship, the nation of Israel that God had set up as the most powerful in the world for its time is divided into two. The northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom And they have a string of evil kings. The first thing that happened was the king that took over set up two altars where people could come and worship idols, immediately departing from God. And so they have this series of just random kings, bad king after worst king after worst king after worst king. And then the southern kingdom, they still had the temple, and they had David's line, and David had some really good descendants, some really good kings came out of them, but the majority just became more and more and more evil. Until the northern kingdom, because they, they never had favor with God, crumbled and were taken over by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. <laughs> Wiped out. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel ceased to exist. And then, with the southern kingdom continually chasing evil and chasing idolatry, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, who conquered the Assyrians, wiped out Judah, the southern kingdom, and crushed and destroyed the temple and wiped out Jerusalem. 12 tribes of Israel obliterated. And all of, this, all of the people, all of the Israelites that were still alive, a majority of them were drug off to Babylon on the other side of the world in slavery. The second time God's people would be in slavery. Now during this time of these kings getting worse and worse and worse in the northern and southern kingdom, God sent prophets to try to turn them back from their evil. Turn back to God. Turn away from your idols. Prophets, prophets that you've heard of, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea. You've heard these prophets before, right? Micah, these incredible prophets. And they were denied and rejected over and over again. And so now God's people find themselves with no country. And they find themselves trapped and enslaved in Babylon, in a place that's not their own. For 70 years, they were slaves in Babylon until... They cried out to God. And God sent Persia to come and wipe out Babylon, the biggest world power of the time. And Persia sees these people living there and just doesn't care and releases them to go home, releases them from their slavery. And under Zerubbabel, that's fun to say, and Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people return back to Jerusalem, to their homeland, and begin to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and begin to reinstitute Worship to God. And God sends more prophets. Prophets like Haggai and Malachi. And he predicts through them, I'm going to deal with the human condition. I'm going to finally deal. Because the sacrifices didn't cut it. The punishment of slavery in Babylon didn't cut it. Nothing's dealt with the human heart. I'm going to once and for all deal with the human heart. 
And Ezra and Nehemiah take this tour through the country. After they just set up temple worship, as they reinstituted the law, and everywhere they go in the country, they see people slipping back to their sin again. And it's there that the Old Testament ends. The people are continuing to decline, but there's this hope. Meanwhile, Greece conquers Persia. And under Greece, Israel puts up this revolt under the Maccabean revolt, and they set themselves free from the hands of the Greeks, which is why they celebrate Hanukkah today. Maybe you've heard of that. And then Rome takes over Greece, and Rome just conquers everything. And once again, Israel is under the thumb of somebody else. And it was in this context, after 400 years of silence from prophets, 400 years since the Old Testament is closed, that an angel shows up to a girl. Mary, blessed are you, Mary, through you, through you. God is coming. <laughs> and then 30 years in total obscurity, Mary raises this son, who she has called Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. And 30 years in obscurity, and another man comes out of the wilderness, crazy seeming, and he's, got, he's eating bugs, and he's covered in leather. And he starts proclaiming that the kingdom, that God's salvation is imminent, and he points at Jesus and says, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God, slain for sin. And Jesus begins ministry. He calls 12 men to him, and every day he teaches them. He shows them miracles, miracles that break the laws of physics that only a creator could do. And he begins to tell them, the day is coming, I'm going to die, but I'm going to resurrect after three days. And they reject it. They just can't even, they can't park that. And they take these teachings of Jesus and they begin to absorb them and absorb them until the day comes that Jesus is betrayed, that he is taken to the cross and he is executed like a criminal on a Roman cross. And it's there that he says his famous words, it is finished. Because the the puzzle piece is finally complete in Jesus. All the prophets, all the sacrifices, all the sin, all the prophecies are pointing forward to something. And it's now finished. But there's one more thing. That's the seal of the deal. That three days later, what only a God could do is to resurrect himself from the grave. Spoken of by angels, witnessed by over 300 people, Jesus returns to his disciples. Alive, eating, and walking through walls. Until 30 days after he rose from the grave, he ascended. He gives them this commission. Go and tell all the world, not just Israel, all the world, my teachings. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I'm going to send you an empowerer, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And 10 days later, after his ascension, after he does his launch back into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes and anoints them, and they start preaching to the whole world. Actually, it was contained for a little bit. 
They start preaching. But then Peter has this vision. Because anybody in here Jewish? Anybody? Me either. There's nothing about me that's Jewish. Peter has this vision where God speaks to him and says, my gospel is not just for Jews. It is for the nations. Remember Abraham? Remember David? Remember Eve? It is for the nations. And through Peter and through Paul, the gospel is taken to the world, to the known world. And that is the story of the Bible. Now, as we're looking at this story and we're considering this, hopefully I've given my man Noah back there the time that he needed. I want to put up, do we have that chart? Did it, did it work? Sweet. You guys are awesome. So just to start getting a grasp in your mind of where this happened in human history. Yeah! Okay. Can you all read that at all? All right. Good, good. If you can't read it, scoot up. It's, it's pretty good. You can also find this. Just Google books of the Bible. You'll find it. Now, to get a grip on this and where this happened in human history, I'm going to use very general numbers, but just so you can understand the timeline of how this happened, think like this. At about 2000 BC, God was calling Abraham and beginning this family. Jump, we're going to do 500 year segments. Jump, jump forward 500 years, 1500 BC. So 1440 technically, but for 500 years sake, 500 years later after Abraham, God is calling the Israelites out of Egypt for the Exodus to give them the covenant. Jump forward another 500 years to 1000 BC. We have David and the Davidic kingdom is beginning. And then we have the terrible kings, right? So jump over another 500 years, 586 BC. So another 500 years. This is whenever all of Israel is wiped out and they're taken to Babylon. And then 70 years later, 535, they are brought back into their promised land. And then 0 BC, technically 6 to 4 BC, but 0 AD, right there in the middle, we have Jesus steps on the scene. So does that make sense? So if you go in 500 years increments, this helps you grab it on the human timeline. We have Abraham at 2,000 years. We have David at 1,500 years. No, sorry. Abraham at 2,000 years. The Exodus at 1,500 years. David at 1,000 years. The Babylonian exile where they get taken to Babylon at 500. And then Jesus. Did y'all follow that? That was super helpful to me. Maybe that's helpful to you. If not, just let it go and start paying attention now. So we have the Bible. And I want to break this into sections so it starts making sense, and I'll tell you how the story fits each of these sections. It's broken into law, history, poetry, prophets, gospels, the Christian church, Pauline epistles, and general epistles. Take a look up here. We have the law. Right here, Genesis, Exodus. That is the story of God's creation and his founding, the, the Abraham family. And then at the beginning of Exodus, it begins what went on in Egypt and tells the story of how God got them out of Egypt. Leviticus is the law. This is what God gave them at Sinai, that, that cleansing of sins through the blood of animals. Numbers is the story of them wandering in the wilderness. And then we have Deuteronomy, which is a recap from Moses, his last words, which is sort of strange because he says he was the most humble guy that ever lived. Love you, Moses. And then right here we have history. Joshua is how they took the promised land. Judges is that cycle that I told you about how they would go into sin, then God would send a judge, then they would serve God. And then beginning at 1 Samuel through 2 Kings, this is the story of David's line and the Israel and Judah lines until they're wiped out. This is the history of what was going on. Then 1 and 2 Chronicles is a retelling of that from a different author and gives you a different kind of insight, different perspective. 
And then after they come back from Babylon and they're going to rebuild the temple, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem, that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Then we have these fun books. They're wisdom and, and poetry. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. We don't know where to put them, so we just stick them right there in the middle. They're fun. Then these are the prophets. You see Isaiah through Malachi. These are the prophets that were sent to Israel and Judah during the time of First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. You all see that? These books right here overlap the history. Does that make sense? So what's going on when all these kings are messing up, God is sending those prophets to say, turn back to God. So at the end of Malachi, we have this foreshadowing that the Messiah is coming. Boom! We have four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are four perspectives on the life, death, teaching, and resurrection of Jesus. It's so cool that we have four Gospels instead of just one. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that next week. Then we have how the church expanded into the known world through the book of Acts. And then we have the theology. Okay, taking Jesus' teaching, how do we live it out? We have Paul's letters and we have the general letters. These are Paul's letters are in red. The general letters are from Jesus' other disciples that wrote stuff. That's why it's just called the general letters. It's just other disciples that wrote stuff. And then we have John who closes the Bible with a prophetic word looking either towards the future or the present persecution. Does that make sense? Real quick, I want to talk about the authorship. Most of these, if you see it named after somebody, that's the person that church tradition assigns as the author. And for most of it, we don't have any argument with it. That's all the proof that we have is that they wrote it. Can you put the chart back up there? Thank you. All right, so what you see in red, that was written by Moses. He at least wrote a majority of it. They probably had some other scribes and some other editors afterwards. Like I said, somebody had to be around to say, and Moses died. Does that make sense? But Moses wrote the bulk of those first five books. The historical books, Joshua through 2 Kings, we have no idea who wrote that. Um, I had a teacher who called him Ralph. But what you need to know is that those books were collected and written and given to the Israelites while they were in exile and slavery in Babylon. Because the author is always trying to answer the question, why are we here? Why are we in slavery in Babylon? If, anytime you're reading Joshua through 2 Kings, ask yourself, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's enslaved, who worshiped God, and ask, ask that question, why are we here? And you'll see that it starts with Joshua, that he doesn't keep the covenant. And again, and again, and again, and again, it answers that question. First and Second Chronicles and Ezra, Ezra wrote those. That is the priest that helped lead people back from the Babylonian exile back to Israel. Nehemiah, Nehemiah wrote it. Esther, had a girl. And then Job, we have no idea. Job may have actually been written before Abraham ever lived. It, it is probably the oldest writings in the Bible. I just think that's cool. Psalms, David wrote just under half the Psalms. He wrote 49 of the 150. No, yeah, whatever 50 is in half minus one. Anyway, some other authors of the Psalms are Asaph, Korah, Heman, the sons of Korah. Solomon wrote a couple. Moses wrote one. Ethan, and then we have 50 that we don't know who wrote them. Proverbs was written by Solomon. There's one proverb written by Agur and one proverb written by Lemuel, but mostly by Solomon. Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs are both written by Solomon. And then the prophets, you can read those. Those are who wrote those prophets. Jeremiah, oh, Lamentations, that was written by Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah and Lamentations go back to back. Jeremiah is saying, God's wrath is coming if you don't turn from idols. Lamentations is, God just wiped us out. This sucks. Y'all follow me? All right. Then Mark was written by John Mark. There's several Marks, so it's important to know that. Uh, Luke and Acts were written by Luke. It's actually a part one and part two of the same book that's written by Luke. Romans through Philemon, all of those over there, were written by Paul. Hebrews, we have no idea. It fell in, we have like four different ways that the books got into the Bible. Hebrews fell into all of them except knowing the authorship. This one guy made a great argument for Paul, so you can lean on him if you want. Uh, James was not written by the James of the Apostles. It was actually written by Jesus' brother, which I find that really cool. And then Revelation was written by John. Do you have your physical Bible here tonight? All right. Hold up your Bibles. Man, this thing, it's life-changing. What we're going to do is I want to show you, leave the books up there. I want to try to quickly help you navigate and find things in your Bible. Because this thing is thick. It's straight up thick. It's hard to find stuff in here. Try to find the book of Hezekiah. It's hard. If you can find the book of Hezekiah, I'll give you $100. Go. It's not in there. I'm just kidding. All right. See the list? It's not in there. Don't stop looking. Pay attention. All right. What you're going to do first, if your Bible has a concordance at the back, this isn't going to work perfectly. So you need to find Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to start cutting it in half. You ready for this? Not, not technically with a knife. No, we're just going to split it open. So, all right, so you have your Bible in hand. Try to omit, this Bible right here has tons of stuff in the beginning and the back, so it really doesn't work well with this one. But it's such a great Bible. I recommend getting it, $25 at the snack shop. All right, cut your Bible in half, as close to half as you can. You're going to land in Psalms, Proverbs, or Isaiah, maybe Song of Solomon, something like that. You are in the middle of the Bible-ish. You have landed right in the middle of poetry and wisdom. There you go, right there, poetry and wisdom in the yellow. That's where you've landed. Now, if you take the first half and you cut that bad boy in half, you're going to land probably in First or Second Samuel. If you land there, what you're looking at is the far left is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the law. This is the stuff that was written by Moses. It is the foundation of the rest of the Bible. You do not have Jesus if you do not have the Pentateuch. That second quadrant that you created, this is the history of the Bible, the historical books, Joshua through Esther. There you go. It's right there in that second quarter. Let's go to the other half. You ready? Cut that bad boy in half. Maybe I should be saying good boy. Yikes. You should find yourself in maybe Malachi-ish, Matthew maybe, somewhere in there. Of these two halves, your left half is the prophets right there. Prophets in the green, Isaiah through Malachi. In the last quarter, you're looking at the New Testament. That's Matthew through Revelation. You have the New Testament. That is the Gospels. That is the letters that are written by the people that walked and talked with Jesus. Now, for fun, if you want to take that last quarter of your Bible and divide that in half, so you have two-eighths. The eighth on your left are the Gospels, the first four books. And the last eighth of the Bible are your letters. That is all the things that were written by the people that walked and talked with Jesus and Revelation. Did that help anybody? Cut that bad boy in half and in half and in half. 
is so beautiful. If, if all of this is way too much for you to grab right now, you can get on iloveelevate.com, go to podcast, and you can download the PDF of everything that I'm talking about. Boom. There was a missionary. And he was a missionary in Vietnam during the war with Vietnam. Tough circumstances. And the translator that he used was also a translator for the American military. He was Vietnamese, and his name was Hein Pham. And this missionary and Hein became very good friends, and they actually crossed Vietnam from top to bottom, left to right, spreading the gospel of Jesus, and became very, very good friends. And when it was time for the missionary to leave, they shook hands, never knowing if they would meet again. The missionary returned to the States and 17 years later received a phone call from a familiar voice. It was Hein. Hein! I don't know. It's just fun to say. He didn't invent beer. And Hein told him this story of where he had been the last 17 years. Whenever Vietnam fell, Hein was imprisoned on the accusation of helping Americans. He had been. And he was in prison, and while he was in prison, they tried to brainwash him and re-indoctrinate him away from American ideals and away from his Christian faith that he had gained in his time with this missionary. He gave his life to Jesus with this missionary. And so they tried to re-indoctrinate him, tried to whitewash him, tried to force him to give up his faith. And every day they would force down propaganda in Vietnamese literature. They hit him with a deluge of, of Marxism. And one day he finally came to himself sitting in prison. Maybe I've been lied to. Maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe these missionaries from America had been lying to me all along. So sitting in his prison cell, Hein decided, beginning tomorrow, I'm no longer going to pray I'm no longer going to think about my faith anymore. I'm walking away. The next morning, Hein gets a reassignment. He is assigned to the terrible, awful, dreaded job of cleaning the lavatories of the soldiers. This is Hein's life. Scrubbing toilets and disposing of toilet paper. Until his eyes catch a piece of paper with English type on it. And he pulled it out and realized it was a page of the Bible. And he tucked it away and he waited till all the other prisoners were asleep that night. And he pulled it out and he washed it and he tried to get some light and he read that it was Romans 8. And this is what he read. All things work together for the good of those who are called. And he continued reading. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. And Hein wept. He knew his Bible. He knew there was nothing more relevant he could have read on today, the day he was giving up his faith. And Hein repented. Because what his tormentors were using for toilet paper was the greatest treasure he could have ever held in his hands. So Hein talked to his supervisors and asked, could he be the one who cleans the toilets every day? Because he figured out that one 
of the higher-up soldiers was using the Bible as toilet paper, and every day he would get another piece, and he'd wash it, and he'd add it to his collection, and he'd read it at night, and it became his most treasured possession. And when the day came that, totally unexpected to him, and through a miraculous series of circumstances, Hein was released from prison. And he began his plan to leave the country and construct a boat so that he and 53 other people could escape Vietnam. And one day, only a couple days before they were about to depart, he gets a knock at the door by four Viet Cong soldiers. And his blood goes cold. They asked him directly if he was planning to escape, if he was planning to take a boat to escape. Absolutely not. No. Swore up and down until the Viet Cong left. And then he felt this strange guilt. And he made a promise to God, a promise he hoped to God he wouldn't have to keep, that if the soldiers came back, he would tell them the truth. And on the morning that they are about to push off into the ocean, who should come up are four Viet Cong soldiers catching them in the act. They asked him, is this yours? Are you trying to escape? (laughs) Yes, I am. And the soldiers leaned in and said, can we go with you? And 58 men left the shore that morning. But it was in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the most crazy circumstances, on their, on their shackled boat, ramshackle boat, that's the word I was going for. It was a hoopty of a boat, to use some language that I appreciate. A storm came up, and none of them knew how to sail except four Viet Cong soldiers that got them safely to land in Thailand. And Hein had found his way finally to the United States to call up his missionary friend and give God all the glory for scraps of toilet paper that he found. What we have taken for granted most of our lives has been the lifeblood to broken, scared, lost, hungry, and hopeless people. It has been a river of fresh drinking water to those souls who are filthy and wicked and thirsty. This is God's self-revelation to us so that we can know him, worship him, and enjoy the gift of his presence. Like Hein Pham, we need to begin to treasure what it is we take for granted. as the very brief words of God. And it needs to begin with a steady diet. If you want to look into the authors of the Bible more, I've got this link. This is a really cool link that unpacks it with a lot more detail and gives you the history of each of the authors. Feel free to check that out. Recap. I don't think we're having e-groups tonight, guys. Sorry. (laughs) I'm long-winded. Recap. The greatest human need is to be justified to God through the forgiveness of our sin by the work of Jesus. The Bible is God's self-revelation with two purposes, to give him glory and for us to know him through Jesus, to believe and to have that salvation. Since the beginning of time itself, God has ordained his perfect means of salvation, and we find it in the Bible. The Bible can be divided into eight sections, law, history, poetry, prophets, gospels, church history, Pauline epistles, and general epistles. Remember how to crack it open. 
And finally, we must begin to treasure and hunger for God's work. I love how Peter, Peter, the guy who walked with Jesus, listen to what he says. Peter 1, verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice came to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard it with our very ears, this very voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the mountain. I'm a witness, Peter is saying. I saw it. I was there. I heard it. I quaked in my skin to hear the voice of God declaring that Jesus is his son. And what does Peter say? And we have the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More confident am I in the written scriptures than I am of my own five senses that heard the voice of God, that saw Jesus in the flesh, that experienced him, that put my fingers in the holes of his hands. I have more faith in God's word than my own own senses. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I have two challenges for you tonight. The first one is to find a Bible that you can read easily. That may mean taking your King James Bible, kissing it, and buying another Bible. We have Bibles on sale in the snack shop. They're both cheaper than what you can buy elsewhere because I really, really want you to have a Bible in your hands The ESV study Bible that we're selling is a monument of awesomeness. Not only will you get God's word clearly and accurately translated for you, but it also has tons and tons of commentary, footnotes, maps, illustrations, everything you could look look for and want in the Bible. It had 200 people working on this thing to make sure you had an accurate translation and accurate commentaries. It's a great Bible. Go and buy it. Number two, challenge number two, go and read Psalm 19. It's a simple psalm of 14 verses, and it gives you two ways that we can know God. Ask that question. What are the two ways we can know God while reading Psalm 19? Heavenly Father, this is all for your glory. The greatest story that could ever be imagined was how much you would love us so that you would carry the weight of your wrath against sin so that we could know you and return to a God of life, to have holiness and righteousness through you to have eternal life, to be saved from hell. Lord, that you would move us from damned to holy. Oh, Lord, who are you, God, that you would love us like that? Thank you for revealing yourself in your scriptures. Bless every man and woman in here tonight. Thank you, Lord, for their long attention spans. Thank you, Lord, for the seeds that you're planting. Lord, I pray that the Bible begins to align itself in their minds and memories. And they begin to see it through new eyes. I give these things to you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.